is happy to give the time and the space uh, to him to remind us that so much of what we do, uh, we set out to do with our own thoughts and our own plans, and then God usually is dreaming bigger than we are. And then God uses us uh, in ways that we can't ask or imagine. And, and it is this sense, right, that God is calling us to reach a world that's, that's hurting, that's struggling, uh, a world where, where people are constantly going through things that they, they don't understand, that we don't understand, and yet we're trying to bring in any possible way we can, we're trying to bring the good news of the gospel to them. And, and if we're going to do that in the most effective ways, then we need more than one way to share that good news. And so for the last two months, we have been looking at different ways of thinking about how do people see the world and how can we meet them where they are and tell them the good news of what Jesus alone is able to do for them. How Jesus alone is able to meet these various needs that drive us as, as human beings. And so today we're going to be looking at this, this last one, the need to be at peace. But before we do that, I want to say something since this is the last Sunday that we'll be looking at this, this study. I have never been more exhausted by a study in my life. Now, you may say me too, you know, amen. And, and part of it has been that it has required not only, you know, months of, of reading ahead of time, but for six days each week, as soon as we got past week one, which I already knew by heart because it's my unique cross to bear, every single one of these weeks for six days, I have done my very best to try to see the world from that place, from that perspective. And, and I told you earlier, you know, part of that meant that for a couple of days each week, I thought I started having an, an identity crisis and I thought, well, I have this need too. And, and we have all of these different drives and motivations, right? But one of these is, is mostly yours. It belongs to you. And mine, week after week, sometime on Tuesday, I come back to the, the truth that more than anything else, I have this obsession of trying to get everything just perfect. Then I would shift, I would say Wednesday and Thursday, I'd start feeling sorry for you, <laughs> right? Those of you for whom... You, you were driven by a different core need, the need to be needed, the need to be successful, the need to be understood, the, so on and so forth, right? And I would think, man, this is so hard to see the world from this different perspective, from this different place. And then I got to be honest with you, by the time I get to Friday or Saturday, I was over it. I didn't feel sorry for you as much as you annoyed me. Right, not you specifically, but, but that, that perspective, it was so hard for me to maintain it. It, it took so much effort that I was just annoyed. It was like, this is just frustrating. Why can't everybody just have my problem? Why, why can't everybody just see the world from where I'm standing? And by the time I would get up here at this point, I was ready. I was, I was looking at the clock back there thinking I only have to see the world this way for 25 more minutes. And I can't wait to put that down. Here's what I want to confess to you. I am 43 years old. 
And until this series, and you know, once you've told a church it's what they're going to do, it's not like on week three I could just change my mind. I was going to have to see this thing through. And I'm ashamed to confess to you that until this series, I don't think I've ever spent six straight consecutive days trying to see the world from anyone else's perspective ever in my life before. Ever. Yeah, I read stuff about how other people see the world and what they go through. I might think about it for an hour or two. I might watch a film that makes me think about it maybe at the most for 48 hours, and then I'm over it. I'm back to seeing the world strictly from, from where I naturally feel like this is, this is how it is. This is how it works. So at 43 years old, for the past two months, I have spent time doing this work, right? Trying to see the world from someone else's perspective. And I, I have found that it is annoying, frustrating, uncomfortable work that I'd rather not do. And yet, it has transformed my, my life. It has transformed my heart. It has given me patience and understanding that I, I would have no other way. Now, I got to confess, the only real motivating factor is I wanted to preach as perfect of a sermon series on the Enneagram as possible, right? It was still self-serving to some degree. But even though I went into it with, with kind of mixed motives, I got to tell you, I'm convinced that doing the work of trying to see the world from someone else's perspective, no matter how hard or exhausting or uncomfortable it is, it is the reconciling work of God. It is the work we're going to have to do if we ever hope to experience a world, the world that God wanted us to always get to experience together as his children, a world where I care so much about you and what you've gone through, I'll take the time, I'll, I'll put in the effort to know what it's like. If, if that's what it's going to take for me to reach you so that you can encounter and experience the life-changing, life-saving love of Jesus. I think it's our inability or our unwillingness to do this kind of work that is at the, the root of every societal problem that we're currently dealing with. That I care only about myself, naturally. And even as somebody who's for, for 40 years been trying to follow in the way of Jesus, I still mostly pretty much only care about how this affects me or where I'm standing or how it but this work is possible through, through the Holy Spirit. It's not just our effort that we suddenly have this insight into what it's like to be someone else and how, how impactful it might be for us to change how we're talking to someone, how we're treating someone, how we're, how we're seeing them. And understanding that this rich tapestry of diversity is, is not something that we have to put up with. It's what we were created for. Okay. So the need to be at peace. Last week, we, we talked about what it's like to look at our world and notice all of the ways that we're fractured and broken people, all the ways that we disagree, and all of the ways that we end up fighting 
And we talked about the fact that some of us come to the place where we see a world like that and we say, okay, well, if everyone's fighting and everyone's struggling, then I want to have the, the most resources I can cobble together, I can gather together both inside of, of my heart and in my life so that I can fight back, so that I can, so that I can win. Well, that's one way to respond to a world that you know is filled with conflict. Here's another way to keep trying to find the small places in our world where, where there aren't fights going on, where, where there isn't any battle that you have to pick a side for, right? And, and it's always moving, and, and, and it can be exhausting trying to find the places where there's some sense of peace. And, and here's what's really tricky about this, is, is for many of us, we start to think that the key to experiencing inner peace is that we first have to find ourselves in a situation of peace, an outer peace. But it takes way more than just one of us deciding that we'd like things to be peaceful for, for peace to actually break out in our world. And so what ends up happening is that if, if you wake up every day and what you're really trying to find is just a little stillness and a little quiet away from all of the conflict and all of the heat and all of the, the anger and all of the stuff that's tearing our world apart, you're going to find yourself often pulling away, creating a little distance, trying to get a little breathing room. You're going to find yourself often saying, when, when you see people having some kind of conflict, you're going to say, you know what, maybe they don't agree, but it's just not worth it. It's just not, it's not worth it. I'm not going to get involved in that, that situation. I'm not going to pick a side. I'm not going to, to fight against anybody if I don't have to. So I'm just going to, I just. I notice that things are going on wrong, but it doesn't feel like it's my job to fix it. I'll let other people try. And then once there's peace that's been reached, then I'll, I'll, I'll draw closer again. There's all kinds of places in Scripture we could go to kind of hear that, that same voice, that same need at the heart of the people in the story of Scripture. But the one that, that I think really resonates the most with this is Moses who knows that his world is unjust, who knows that there's oppression, who knows that there's problems, who knows that there's fights worth entering into, and, and he knows that at times you have to kind of pick a side. But he, he doesn't feel like he's the one who should have to go do something about it. Right, so in Exodus chapter 3 and then on into 4, what we have, and we're not going to read all the passages, but we're going to read the, the parts where Moses is speaking to God, where, where God comes to him and says, Moses, I want to use you to be the one to help the world be restored in, in, this, in this moment, this engagement between my people and the Egyptians. I don't want this. I don't want this for them. I don't want this for anybody. I need somebody to go and change things, and I'm choosing you. And the first thing Moses says is, I think you've got the wrong person. Who am I to go and do this? And God says, well, I'm, you're not going to go by yourself. I'm going to go with you. And then Moses says, well, yeah, but okay, even if you go with me, who are you? Like, do you have references that I could give them? 
that would impress them. Like I, and he says, just tell them, I'm the God they've always had. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tell them to remember all the amazing things I've done. That'll help them. And, and then Moses says, okay, well, I, I'm not sure about that. What, what happens if they don't pay attention to me? Nate, go to the next slide. Nate the Great, next slide. Okay, what if they don't believe me or pay attention to me? Well, I'm, not, I'm not somebody people tend to pay a lot of attention to. I'm not somebody that, that people tend to follow. And, and God says, well, I'll give you a couple of really amazing things, signs, miraculous things you can do. And it has to do with his staff turning into a snake and his hand, he can put it in his coat and he has leprosy and then he doesn't. And it, anyway, right? I'll give you ways for them to pay attention to you. And then he says, okay, well, still... I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm not really great at speaking. And God says, I'm pretty sure I made your mouth. And I'm pretty sure I can make you speak well enough. You're going. And then Moses says what he's wanted to say the entire time, right? Which is the next slide. Just send somebody else, please. Send somebody else. And God says, you know what? I'll get your brother Aaron to come be with you, but you're still going. I'm not sending somebody else. I want, I need you to be the one who does this, Moses. Now, again, it's not that Moses doesn't want the people to be set free. He knows it needs to be done. But when he thinks about who he is, when he thinks about what he thinks he he can bring to the table, when he thinks about how other people see him, he just can't find the energy to do it because it just doesn't feel like it's worth it. It's not going to work out. It's not going to accomplish what God is telling him it's going to accomplish. Could you imagine being so confident in your pessimism that when God tells you it's going to work out, you say, you haven't thought it through. (laughs) It's just not worth it. Here's what the gospel says in response to that core drive that some of us feel. The world needs what only you can offer. Right? Moses, not Aaron. And Aaron's going to do some things, and Aaron's also going to mess up some things, right? But it's, it's what only Moses can offer, even if Moses doesn't understand what that is. God does. You know, the Apostle Paul kind of talks about this in Romans chapter 12 where he, he realizes that there are people in the church that are going to hear the, the call he's giving them to say, look, we're, 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 we're being woven together into this one body, this church, but each one of us has a unique place in it, right? He says, because of the grace that God gave me, I can say to each one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. I want to add here, don't think of yourself more lowly than you ought to think. Right? It's not just, aw, shucks, why would you choose me? But some of us really struggle with that because he says, be reasonable. Right? Don't think too much of yourself. Don't think too, too little of yourself. Be honest with yourself. Since God has measured out a portion of faith to each one of you, we sang all kinds of song, songs this morning, and several of them had the phrase in it, amazing grace. Right? And, and You don't have to grow up in church at all to have heard that song before, to have sung the song Amazing Grace before. That phrase is all over the place because it's a powerful phrase. But what Paul's saying here is, grace isn't just amazing, grace takes your shape. Grace looks like you. 
Grace sounds like you. Grace comes into people's lives through you. Personally, uniquely, one-of-a-kind grace. That's what you bring with you when you show up. Nobody else can be that form of God's grace. It's just you. So you can't say, well, I have somebody else do it, right? He says, if we've got these different gifts. If your gift's prophecy, you should prophesy and proportion your faith. If it's service, devote yourself to serving. If it's teaching, devote yourself to teaching. If your gift's encouragement, devote yourself to encouraging. The one giving should do it with no strings attached. The leader should lead with passion. The one showing mercy should be merciful. Now, now here's, here's what I tend to do in there. I look at all those things and I go, okay, um, I'll take teaching. You guys take the rest. That's, that's not what he's trying to say here. What he's saying is, if I'm the one teaching, that form of God's grace, it's only going to work if I'm, if, if I'm the one speaking. If you are teaching, because there's mo- many, many people in this, this church body that are gifted with teaching. If you got up to teach, it would be a different form of God's grace. right? So it's not that we just look at this list and we pick the one we most want to be. It's that we need to understand that when it comes to showing mercy, you're going to show mercy in a different way than I do, and that's grace. You're going to give financially. We're all wanting to give financially, not only in a weekly way, but every year to Harvest Sunday, right? It's not enough if everybody else in the room gives. Every single person in this, this church body needs to find a way to give because it's unique. It's, it's a one-of-a-kind gift of grace, right? Words of encouragement, I mean, have you ever been disappointed in someone else's words of encouragement? Do you decide that if three or four of us, we start encouraging you, that you just cut it off and say, no, that's enough. I'm, I'm going to get a big head. Don't. Nobody. No. Every single person in this church is uniquely gifted to encourage. There's something about you that's only true about you. It's the best thing about you. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And there's something about it, there's something about you that if you don't find a way to offer that gift, the world is going to suffer for it. Someone's going to hurt because of it. The gospel means that each one of us is personally called to do whatever we can to engage the challenge and the messiness of life so that we can help others through life. I know people are arguing in our world. They're fighting over things that just, they're not worth fighting over. I know there's, there's a part of every single one of us that's just sick and tired of it all and we just want to give up and we want to run away from it. But, but Jesus says to us, but if you run away from it, then you're taking away the, the salvation of the world, which is you not just talking about or singing about my amazing grace, but you becoming the embodiment of that grace. Every single one of us. And it's going to mean we have to enter into things where there are sides and people aren't seeing eye to eye and and people are mistreating one another and people are threatening to and actually giving up on one another and they're attacking one another. And we're going to have to find the courage to say, I don't want to start a new fight. I don't want to make any fights worse, but I want to find a way 
to not just try to keep the peace or pretend that everything's peaceful. I want to do the gospel work of making peace, of waging peace, not just waging war. So this is the question for those of us who may be tempted to kind of pack everything up and try to get away and just wait things out. What if instead of waiting to be asked, you took the initiative to stand up, to speak up, to, to roll your sleeves up? That's, I know it sounds like Dr. Seuss, but just go with me. For those things that matter most to God. You know, I, I feel like everywhere now when we travel, I notice there's signs at airports and at train stations, and, and it has to do with keeping people safe. It's the sign that says, if you see something, what? Say something. If you see something, say something. Do something. If you see something, it's yours to do. Right? If, you, if you see a situation and you're there and, and it's unfolding, now I'm not saying it's yours to fix from top to bottom. I'm saying there's a part of the healing of the world that God is asking you to roll up your sleeves. And I, I, don't have, I don't have it all worked out. I don't understand everything here. But I know this, that when this is all said and done, I want us to be together. I want us to care about one another more than who wins the argument. I want us to find a way to embrace one another. Well, if we're going to embrace one another, we have to engage one another. It comes together. And it means, brothers and sisters, that those of us, we're the last people who want attention. We're the last people who want to be asked, you know, what do you think about that? We're going to have to take the initiative what in this conflict, what in this battle, what in this misunderstanding is mine to heal? Who in this room is somebody that I am uniquely graced to reach? What would it mean for us to take that initiative? You know, I think often of the, the story of Jesus clearing out the temple, and I want us to read it together now, and this is where we're going we're gonna to finish, because this story, as you try to, to picture it, right, it makes, it makes all of us, I think, a little bit uncomfortable. We tend to like to have images of Jesus that are, are warm, and, and, you know, he's got the little lamb across his shoulders, and he's smiling, and you like to picture yourself. No, nobody has a poster of this on their wall, I mean, Chris Brandon might, but uh, no, nobody, nobody has this be their favorite image of Jesus because he's, he's acting in ways that make us uncomfortable because he's had enough. And he's decided that this is his to do. It's nearly time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He, he found in the temple those who were selling cattle, sheep, doves, as well as those involved in exchanging currency sitting there. Now, we don't have enough of the details I, I wish we had. It's obvious in Jesus' reaction here that whatever's going on with all this money, people are being victimized by it. Whether it's because there's unfair rates on loans that are being given to poor people so that they can turn around and buy sacrifices, we don't know. But we know Jesus isn't just angry that cattle and sheep and doves are, 
are being sold for the purpose of worship. So something's going on that's not fair, that's not right. He made a whip from ropes and chased them all out of the temple, including the cattle and the sheep. And they got to be thinking, what did we do? But anyway, he scattered the coins and overturned the tables of those who exchanged currency. He said to the dove sellers, get these things out of here. Don't make my father's house of worship into a place of profit. And again, it's not just profit. It's profit that's victimizing somebody, right? His disciples remembered that it's written, passion for your house consumes me. If Jesus did this in the era of smartphones, and this went viral, and it would, we'd have to wrestle with why Jesus not only got angry, but he channeled his anger in this way, right? I don't think this is an example, as much as it might be tempted, uh, tempting for us to do this. He's not losing his temper. He's channeling it. He's angry that people are taking advantage of one another in his name, right? Because if you're, if you're overcharging poor people for sacrifices, you are using the idea of worshiping God to hurt other people. And Jesus, he won't. He's not going to take that. He sees it. And he says something, and he does something, and he overturns the tables, right? And I want us to hold on to that image, because so often in our lives, I think we treat anger itself like a problem, like we need to run from it, and we need to squelch it, and we need to deny it. The problem is, when we put off conflict that needs, needs to happen, right? When we try to delay moments where someone has to stand up, and out of anger say, this isn't right, and I can't believe we're doing this to one another, and if nobody else is going to say it, then I'm going to say it, and then I have to throw something down to get your attention, then I'll do whatever I have to do to get your attention. And this isn't that Jesus is overturning a table for himself. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he'd let you nail him to a cross before he overturned a table for himself. That's not what he's interested in. He's going to overturn the tables for people who can't overturn those tables for themselves. And brothers and sisters, we still, unfortunately, have to admit we live in a world where there are things that need overturning. And if we push down anger, every time we get angry at, at things that are unfair and that aren't right, every time we, we ignore that or we try to wait it out, we are failing to follow Jesus in this moment of his life that isn't supposed to be separate from all the other moments, but is in fact how his life looks when he's standing in front of people who are hurting one another in his name. Enough. Get out of here. I'm glad you knew I was being rhetorical. The things that make us angry we need to ask ourselves why they're making us angry. And if we, through searching our hearts and the guidance of the Holy Spirit and looking at Scripture, if we come to the place where we understand that those things also make God angry, we better say something and we better do something because it's how we're going to be like Jesus. There's something this world needs that only you can offer.
I don't know exactly what that is. And you may not know exactly what that is, but you need to find out what it is, that unique shape of grace that's alive in you, that somebody else desperately needs to encounter. But if that's going to happen, you're going to have to get past the fear you have of, of you know, I just don't, I don't want to make anybody angry. I don't want to bother anyone. I don't, I don't want to cause anyone to, to misunderstand where I'm coming from. Look, brothers and sisters, if we're going to, to do the kinds of, of, of world-building, world-healing work that Jesus has called us to do, we're going to have to overturn a few things. We're going to have to say something. We're going to have to do something. And we're going to have to trust that when we find the courage to be like Jesus, to, to do what we can, to use the resources we have to make somebody else's life better, not just in general, but to make their lives better because of Jesus, I'm telling you, everything will change. Everything will be made new. And you and I are going to have front row seats for all of it. We're going to sing together now. And as we do, I pray that you and I give ourselves back to God and ask God, what is it you need me to do? What is it you need me to say? Who is it that you need me to stand up for, to stand next to, to care about? What is it that you're personally asking me to do that nobody else can do exactly the way you've equipped me to do it? What is it, God? And, and, and as God gives us that wisdom, brothers and sisters, may, may we find a way to give one another the strength to do it. Let's stand and sing.